Hello and welcome back to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we peer through history's darkest tunnels to uncover some of the most notorious crimes and criminals. We're on episode seven and today we're headed to one of my all-time favorite countries. We're not going there for very good reason or I should say uh, we're going there for a more sinister reason than vacation. Uh, And where we're headed is to Scotland. When we look back to the early 1800s, science and medicine have made significant strides. However, it's difficult to conduct anatomical research since it's really hard to get fresh cadavers on which to conduct experiments or dissection. There just weren't enough cadavers to go around due to the university's voracious demands. But oddly enough, an opportunity for profit is going to occur for at least two people. William Burke and William Hare will murder at least 16 people over the course of 10 months back in 1828. They are regarded as two of the most notorious serial killers in Scottish history. Before we dive into the actual murders, I want to go back and talk about what Edinburgh would have been like in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. I want to preface this by saying Edinburgh is one of my all-time favorite cities. If you haven't been and you have the chance to go, I highly recommend it. But Edinburgh in the late 18th and early 19th century was probably not a very nice place to live. It would have been pretty crowded and very unsanitary. Those who could afford to lived outside of the city center or what they called Old Town. Between 1760 and 1830, Scottish cities experienced such rapid growth that it was too fast for the city's sanitation infrastructure to keep up. The close quarters and unhygienic condition in Edinburgh's Old Town contributed to the spread of illnesses. They wouldn't have had uh, separate toilets or bathrooms, only one communal chamber pot, and families would frequently share one room. So this is what's happening in Edinburgh. It's a crowded place. It's a place where people are looking for work. Um, It's not dangerous, but it's a place where one could fall through the cracks. So now I'd like to turn to William Burke and William Hare. Details are actually scarce on their early lives, but we do know Burke was likely born in the province of Ulster in Northern Ireland. As an adult, he tried a number of trades and even served as an officer servant in the Donegal militia. He left behind his wife and two children and immigrated to Scotland around 1817 to work for the Union Canal. It's in uh, Scotland that he meets a woman named Helen McDougall, and later he's going to hold jobs such as a laborer, a weaver, a baker, and a cobbler. William Hare is also born in Ulster, and like Burke, immigrates to Scotland to work as a laborer for the Union Canal. He'll later relocate to Edinburgh, where he meets the owner of a lodging house in Westport. And following that owner's passing in 1826, Hare will um, get together with the owner's widow, Margaret. Hare worked on the canal while Margaret continues to run her lodging home. Hare and Burke meet when Burke and his mistress, Helen McDougall, move to Edinburgh. They live on the same street as Hare and Margaret. Neither has a criminal history at this point or any indication of criminal behavior, but it won't be long until all of that would change. Hare and Burke are going to find themselves getting into a really unusual line of criminal behavior and I want to give a little bit of context on why cadavers and grave robbing would have been pretty popular uh, at the time. 
so throughout a large portion of history, um, the common man really did not think anatomy or dissection was something that should be done. Most people found the thought of dissecting a body to be repugnant. Thus, the act was generally carried out in secrecy. Before James, sorry, before King James IV permitted barber surgeons to dissect some felons who were put to death, human dissection in Scotland was actually illegal. Okay, so now dissections are allowed by some people, but only on felons who um, were executed. But that will change with the Murder Act of 1752, and it's going to take things a step further because it will start allowing the public to view these dissections. This wasn't for the greater good. It wasn't even to advance medical knowledge. Rather, it was to strengthen the penalty for murder. So the idea behind it was they wouldn't give criminals a decent funeral and instead they dissect and display them in the public. And this was meant to deter criminal activity, specifically murder. Before 1832, medical schools couldn't even officially research or teach anatomy since there simply weren't enough cadavers available. Now the University of Edinburgh was a university with a worldwide reputation in the medical sciences. And they had a doctor there, Dr. Robert Knox, who served as the curator of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh Museum. And he was one of the lecturers in charge of the new groundbreaking research around anatomy. The need for cadavers uh, increased dramatically as medical technology took off in the early 19th century. But at the same time, the only legal source were the bodies of condemned criminals. And this uh, pool of bodies had decreased because of the bloody codes repeal, which leads to a steep decline in the execution rate. According to some sources, it was also legal to use the bodies of those who died by suicide, people who died in prison or were orphans. So because there was such a small pool of cadavers available um, for a large number of students, there were only approximately two or three corpses accessible per year. Medical schools, however, would pay well for cadavers. And because of this, criminals began using any method necessary to collect bodies. These criminals gained the nickname of body snatcher, often known as resurrectionists, because they took to grave robbing to provide bodies to the university, which would have been a gray area legally. Although it was illegal to disturb a grave and sell the deceased possessions, it was not illegal to steal a body because it was thought that the body itself wasn't anyone's property. But this increase in grave robbery infuriated the residents of Edinburgh, and they even began to demonstrate in the streets. Watchtowers were built in cemeteries, and guards were encouraged to keep watch in graveyards. Some families even paid to have substantial stone slabs placed over loved ones' graves until the bodies had decomposed beyond the point at which an anatomist could even use them. Grave robbers do begin to find it to be more challenging to dig up bodies because of the public's heightened level of vigilance. Burke and Hare are often um, touted as some of the most famous or infamous body snatchers, but they actually didn't snatch any bodies or dig up any graves, uh, but we'll get to how they got their corpses in a little bit. Before that, I want to go down a bit of a rabbit hole and share one story of one of the most famous cadavers at the time. 
There was a man by the name of Charles Byrne who was born in Londonderry, Northern Ireland in 1761. And he's reported to have grown like a cornstalk and rapidly topped out at a towering seven feet, seven inches. At the age of 21, he sets off for London in around 1782 in search of fame and wealth, which he did partially attain. So Byrne becomes an instant sensation, and he's even called the most amazing curiosity ever known or ever heard of in history by one newspaper. He delights fee-paying Georgian guests who jam-pack rooms just to get a look at him. He even has a personal meeting with King George III. At one point, uh, Byrne even serves as the inspiration for a popular pantomime at the Theatre Royale on Haymarket called The Giant Causeway. So the Irish giant's fame grows even further, but unfortunately he does contract tuberculosis and he begins to drink regularly. He'll die a year later. Byrne attracted a lot of attention during his life and he knew that he'd attract a lot of attention during his death. So he made a point of letting all of his friends know that if he were to pass away, he wanted a burial at sea. When he does unfortunately die at a, at a very young age, um, it's said that the deceased Irishman had a, quote, whole tribe of physicians put in a claim for him, encircling his house, just like harpooners would a huge whale. Now, Burns friends do try to stay true to their word, and they do make arrangements for a burial at sea. However, they're unaware that Byrne's body vanishes in the space between the funeral directors and when the extraordinarily long lead casket is sunk beneath the North Sea's waves. A few years later, um, renowned anatomist, surgeon, and collector of biological oddities, John Hunter, will display the bones of the Irish giant as an exhibit in his own museum. According to one rumor, Hunter paid the mortician 500 pounds to replace the body and pack the stones, sorry, pack the coffin with stones before traveling in order to evade suspicion. Now, 500 pounds back then would be the equivalent to about 74,000 pounds today. In a different account, Hunter is reported to have only compensated Burns pals for the body. But regardless of how the bones were acquired, um, they were acquired. And in order to construct the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons in the heart of London, the British government actually acquires Hunter's extensive and diverse uh, specimen collection after his passing that does include the Irish giant. And until the museum closed in 2017, Burns' skeleton was still on exhibit with jars of pickled body parts, bones, and other various trinkets. Now, the museum is only closed for renovations, and it's actually supposed to reopen in about 2023. There has been a push in the last five years or so um, for Burn to be given a proper burial, but the Hunterian Museum um, has not agreed to anything yet. So this is just one example of how far people would go and how much people would pay to acquire a cadaver back in the late 18th, early 19th century. But back to um, Burke and Hare. So if they weren't grave robbers, what were they? Well, they didn't rob graves, but they did find a way more sinister way to sell corpses. It all starts in December of 1827, when one of Hare's tenants, an elderly army pensioner named 
old MacDonald, uh, dies of completely natural causes. At the time of his death, he still owes four pounds in rent. And Hare will complain to Burke about still being owed the money. So instead of, I don't know, any kind of normal response, the plan devise a very devious way to recover the money. So what they decide to do is weigh down Old MacDonald's coffin with bark before his funeral. So it feels like a body is still in the coffin. And according to Burke's later testimony, um, they were directed to a student or by a student to Surgeon Square. And that's where they find a local anatomist and popular anatomy lecturer, Dr. Robert Knox, who they're going to sell the body to. Knox pays them seven pounds and 10 shillings for Donald's body and doesn't really ask any questions about where the corpse came from. They found instant success in selling their first body and it inspires the team to go hunting for more. The next opportunity uh, comes in early 1828 when another tenant, Joseph, becomes ill. This time, Burke and Hare don't really want to wait around and see if he dies naturally, so they're going to help him along a bit. They give him whiskey and they restrain him while they suffocate him by covering his nose and mouth because it leaves the body unharmed and unmarked for students who would subsequently dissect the cadavers. This form of execution becomes their preferred method. Following their murder spree, the practice is actually going to be dubbed burking and it's when a victim is suffocated with a hand placed over their mouth and nose while weight is placed down on their chest. After Joseph, no other tenant becomes ill. So Burke and Hare have to find um, different ways to get more bodies to sell. They decide they're going to start targeting people from Edinburgh's poorest neighborhoods, thinking that no one's going to miss them. Burke and uh, Hare are accused of killing at least 16 to 17 individuals in total for between 7 and 10 pounds for each cadaver. However, the actual number in all likelihood is probably much higher. We do have one story of a woman who manages to escape Birkin Hare. She was a local prostitute named uh, Janet Brown, and she and her friend Mary Patterson had been invited to stay with Burke. Janet leaves for a period of time, uh, and when she comes back, Mary just isn't there. She was told that Mary and Burke had gone out, and she just decided to wait for her friend to return. Eventually, though, Janet decides to leave since Mary is not coming back, and that one decision quite literally saves her life, because Mary is actually lying dead in the next room, and Janet was probably the next victim. Hare and Burke just keep um, escalating their crimes. They murder an elderly grandmother by overdosing her on drugs. And then in probably one of the most disturbing murders, Hare kills her young blind grandson by severing the boy's back over his knee. They even kill Anne McDougall, who's a direct relative of Helen, without any hesitation. This escalation, however, does lead to some sloppiness. So a number of anatomy students begin to recognize the cadavers. It's reported that several of Knox's students recognized Mary and two other prostitutes, Elizabeth Heldon and her daughter. They were killed after they called the lodging house looking for their missing mother. The rumors are made worse when uh, the pair murders a man named James Wilson, and he's a disabled children's performer known as Daft Jamie. 
Despite denying the identity of the body, uh, Knox has to quickly remove the head and foot while the body are being dissected to stop the students um, from talking about it anymore. At this point, Burke and Hare are successfully getting away with murder and they're making quite a profit from their crimes. And it's not going to be growing suspicion or excellent police investigative work that's their downfall. It's going to be Hare and Burke themselves. The pair get into an argument over the belief that Hare and Margaret are cutting Burke and Helen out of deals with Knox. So Burke and Helen are also going to start taking in lodgers. On Halloween, Burke makes friends with a woman named Marjorie, sometimes referred to as Mary, who's an Irish woman in a nearby store. And he tells her that they're actually connected because his mother also has the same last name as her. And he invites her to stay at his lodging house. Now, there's a slight problem because Burke already had lodgers at his establishment, James and Anne Gray. And murdering people, not always the quietest occupation, so he needs to find a way to get James and Anne out of their house. So instead, he pays for the Greys to spend the night at the Hare's lodging home so that he could commit the murder. The next day, the Greys are going to return to the Burke's lodging house, uh, and they're told that Marjorie had to be kicked out because she kept flirting with Burke. Now, they're already suspicious, um, and then they're not allowed to enter a room where some of their belongings were being kept. So they come back later, and they finally do enter the room, and it's then that they discover Marjorie's dead body under the bed. The couple decide to confront Helen, who tries to bribe them with 10 pounds a week if they just keep their mouths shut. But instead, the Greys refuse, and they report the murder to the police. While all of this was going down, uh, Burke and Hare must have been tipped off because by the time people get to the home, Marjorie's body is gone, presumably already taken to Knox. Burke and Helen and then Hare and Margaret are all arrested, and it's not long before police come knocking on Knox's door. The body in his lecture hall is quickly identified as Marjorie by James Gray, and later, after reading about Marjorie's murder in the paper, Janet Brown comes to identify clothing left at Hare's lodging house as belonging to her missing friend, Mary Patterson. According to uh, BirkinHare.com, one of the first cities in Great Britain to even form a police force was Edinburgh. And local police officers were typically pretty swift and competent in their investigations of crimes. But they also had other duties beyond criminal investigation, including apprehending and punishing vagrants and disorderly persons, suppression, that was hard to say, suppression of common begging, removing nuisances, lighting and cleaning the streets and passages, and generally preserving peace and good order. So they often relied on residents to alert them to possible crimes. Because of this, there was no active investigation into Burke and Hare's actions until Anne and James Gray reported finding Marjorie's body. Now, despite their report, there's actually little evidence otherwise that any crimes had been committed, most of the evidence being circumstantial at best. So Hare is offered immunity if he testifies against Burke and Helen, and he jumps at the chance. The trial gets underway on Christmas Eve of 1828. Burke is also accused of killing James Wilson and Mary Patterson. 
Burke is found guilty and given the uh, death penalty by hanging, but Helen is freed because uh, they decide that her involvement in uh, Marjorie's murder is not proven. So on January 28th, 1829, William Burke is hanged at Lawn Market in front of an audience of almost 25,000 people. Perhaps appropriately, um, or ironically, his body is donated to medical science. A death mask of Burke was actually made, which is an exact replica of his face with rope marks around his neck. And uh, some anatomy students also take like horrifying mementos. Um, They take parts of Burke's skin and they use it to bind books and business cards. At Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh, Burke's skeleton is still on display next to his death mask and the life mask of Hare's face. Despite being a murderer, because of his immunity, Hare is released in February of 1829 and goes to England. It's not really known what becomes of him, but it is rumored that he spends the rest of his days as a blind beggar on the streets of London after an angry mob throw him into a lime quarry. Helen is said to have immigrated to Australia and Margaret to Ireland. During the trial, uh, Burke claims that Knox had absolutely no idea where the bodies were coming from. Thus, Knox was exonerated of any role in the killings, despite pretty public and widespread outcry. His reputation, however, is in tatters, and Knox relocates to London in an effort to revive his medical career. Knox purchased all 16 to 17 cadavers that were ever sold by Burke and Hare. While the first did die of natural causes, the rest were all murdered. There's debate about whether Knox should have been more or held more responsible for his role in the murders. On one hand, it's super common for anatomical lecturers not really to ask too many questions about where the bodies came from. Also, Birking left no forensic evidence pointing to murder, unlike a cadaver with a stab wound or something of that nature. On the other hand, just blindly accepting very fresh cadavers, not even stiff ones like those that were dug up in graves, should at the very least have prompted Knox to ask a couple of questions. In part, as a result of the Burke and Hare murders, the 1832 Anatomy Act gives doctors, anatomy lecturers, and medical students greater access to cadavers and permits the legal donation of bodies to medical science, effectively ending the illegal cadaver selling market trade. Burke and Hare do inspire another team of profit killers by the name of John Bishop and Thomas Williams, also known as the London Burkers. The two admitted to drugging and killing two boys and one woman in Greater London in 1830 with the intention of selling their bodies to nearby hospitals. Bishop also admitted to selling 500 to 1,000 fresh remains taken from cemeteries during a 12-year period. On December 5, 1831, Bishop and Williams receive death sentences and are executed. After that, their bodies are also donated to medical science. You might think that's where the story ends, but no, Burke and Hare continue to live on today in movies. So The Body Snatcher is released in 1945, and although Burke and Hare don't make an appearance in the movie, they're discussed a lot within the film. Then comes Horror Maniacs, or The Greed of William Hart, in 1948, and this was the first film based directly on this case. 
1960, we get The Flesh and the Fiend, a.k.a. The Fiendish Ghouls, and then Burke and Hare in 1972, followed by The Doctor and the Devils in 1985, and finally, another movie called Burke and Hare in 2010. I have to admit, I have seen none of these movies, and I'm not sure I actually would, but they're out there if you decide you want to take a um, cinematic look at the case or the lives of Burke and Hare. And that brings us to the end of another episode. I hope you enjoyed this story. Like always, please uh, review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any case suggestions or feedback, you can follow us on Instagram at historical true crime pod, or reach out to us by email at historical true crime pod at gmail.com. We'll see you again next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.